If you will, take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And we're going to begin reading in verse 27 in just a moment. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. We'll read through verse 36 here in just uh, a moment. Luke has unpacked for us, he has retold for us a number of the uh, dramatic, dynamic things that uh, Jesus did, uh, things that Jesus said. And we come to an episode that is certainly well known. Probably if uh, you had come up to me as an 8 or 10 year old child and asked me, what is the transfiguration? I probably could have given you a bit of a thumbnail sketch as to what uh, you were speaking of or what the Bible was describing in terms of this uh, unique event in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come to it today and even as we think back to the reason for the event and uh, the thinking of the disciples subsequent to this event, we need to ask the question and, and really seek to discover, well, what does this mean? We're told in very dramatic terms what happened, who it happened to, uh, who was there with him when it happened. We get a lot of information, but the question remains out there for us as to the reason why and what does all of this mean? What, what, what are the implications for this dramatic appearance of our Lord before three of his very close disciples? So let's look at this today at the transfiguration and see if we can understand, well, what does it mean? Verse 27. But I tell you, truly... There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Pray with me. Father, once again we thank you for your word. It is your word of truth. 
It is your word to reveal yourself to us, for us, that we may know you and the salvation accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that the very Spirit that inspired these words would be the very Spirit that would work in us today, giving us understanding, uh, bringing to those of us who need comfort a word of comfort, bringing to those of us who need a word of conviction, bringing that conviction. And Lord, uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I call this episode that was just described in these verses uh, something of a, a keyhole episode. Uh, in the literary world, it might be called uh, an, an intercalary episode or story within the story. That is, it's a, a bit of a, an intrusion, and quite honestly, you could remove this episode, you could remove this story from the three Gospels in which it appears, and in a sense, there's not anything that was lost in terms of the advance of uh, the narrative. Now, I'll mention to you a couple of things, and I've mentioned them before, uh, but as an example in the literary world of the use of this type of chapter or episode or uh, 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 little interruption. And in the novel, The Grapes of Wrath, in chapter 4, there's the story of the turtle trying to get across the road. Now, The Grapes of Wrath is the story of a family uh, moving to California from the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma. Now, what in the world does uh, the story of a turtle crossing a highway have to do with that story? But in that story, you get great insight into the worldview of that author. The second story, and I've mentioned it many times, is the episode in the novel A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway, and it's called The Ants on the Log. Well, again, what do ants on the log have to do with Frederick and Catherine trying to get out of the, of the war zone and get to a place where her baby can be born safely? But it exists to get some insight, and even it foreshadows the end of the story, to be honest with you, but some insight into the worldview, the philosophy of the author, Ernest Hemingway. And so this keyhole, this episode, gives us some great insight as to the identity we talked about last week. Who's Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. Well, this episode expands that and, 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 and gives a very real confirmation of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Again, you could just leave it out, and, and the reality is the story goes on. But it says something to us about the essential nature, the essential identity of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to say something to us about what he has come to accomplish. So let's get into it uh, here. First of all, I reached back into verse 27. In my Bible... It, it is part of the previous episode where Jesus invites those that were listening to come and follow him, but beware, because it is a, a road that is indeed marked with sacrifice and suffering. And he speaks of the reality, and let's look there at verse 27, because I want to kind of break it down. I call it the enigmatic promise. Verse 27, the first word in my translation is the word but. That is a word used to say, I'm about to 
make, say something that's going to stand in contrast to what I've been talking about. Well, what has he been talking about? The reality of his death, his suffering, and the reality that those that identify with him are going to suffer. Okay? And so, but i got something else to say that's going to stand in contrast. He says, then, I tell you truly. In other words, what? Pay attention. Pay attention. This is important. I want you to listen. There are some, uh, presumably, uh, the audience for these sayings was the twelve. Okay? There are some, not all, some, right here, standing here. You're present. You're under the sound of my voice. You're going to hear me. You're not going to taste death. In other words, you're not going to die until what I'm about to tell you about comes to pass. Well, what's going to come to pass? You're going to see the kingdom of God. Now, I think probably the most obvious thing that they're going to see or experience is what is described in the succeeding versions. They get a a glimpse of the reality of the king and its uh, the king and the kingdom here in this. But even if God did not give them this unique privilege, guess what? Some of them standing there would actually see the kingdom of God. How? Because they're born again, they see the kingdom, and they saw it unfolding before their eyes as they preached the gospel. Now, why did it say some and not all? Because Judas didn't see it. Judas didn't see it. He, he was not born again. He did not see the realities of the, uh, the uh, uh, in, intrusion of the kingdom in time and space into the world. But obviously, uniquely, there's going to be three from kind of that inner circle. They're going to get a unique experience. They're going to see a manifestation of kingdom realities even in the midst of this world. So Jesus takes that inner circle. They, they, they go away as to why he didn't take all 12. We don't know. But he chose to take uh, Peter, James, and John. Now, John and James, they're referred to as what? The sons of thunder. And then you have Peter. So this was not evidently a, a restful retreat to take those three with him. They, he took them for the purpose of instruction. If none other instruction, then I, you need to watch and you need to understand that yes indeed, though I am the Son of God, I must constantly go, to, go in prayer to my Heavenly Father. And so as we read the Gospels, anytime that we see Jesus praying, we ought to at least think in terms of an application. If it was important for Jesus to pray, how much more so is it important for me to pray? To, to step aside and at this time, Jesus had gained great popularity. He had done miracles. He had fed the, the 5,000. They wanted to come and make him king. And so he says, guys, we're going to take a little time. Because here's the thing. I don't think you get it. I don't think you're getting it. So we've we're, we're, we got some things to, to work out so that you, as much as possible, will get it. And I know what is ahead for me. I told you about it, and it went right, over, went right over your head, obviously. I'm saying that's what Jesus would have thought. But the disciples didn't get the fact that what? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Okay? They, they, they didn't get it. So I know what's ahead, 
And I know how to prepare for what's ahead. And that is this time spent in, in, in discuss, not in discussion, but in prayer with my heavenly Father. And so, while he's doing that, we hear, we see here in the text, they depart, they go up into a, a mountain to pray. We don't know which mountain. Traditionally, there's a mountain on the uh, west side, Sea of Galilee, called Mount Tabor. Uh, there's actually a, a tabernacle, temple, church, whatever, shrine uh, there. Uh, a lot of people think he went there, but there's a good chance he went up to Mount Hermon, which is uh, north of the Sea of Galilee and uh, adjacent to Caesarea Philippi, which is where Peter made that great confession we looked at last week. So we don't know the where so much, and I think there's a reason, and we'll touch on that uh, a bit uh, later on. But they went up into this mountain, they go up to pray, and Luke tells us in verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. That, that something that they saw changed about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew's account, he uses uh, a word that uh, is the basis for our English word, metamorphosis, uh, a change of form. Uh, so something changed about Jesus that was observable, that, that, that he became, instead of looking like a normal human being of flesh and blood, he became radiant. And the, I believe the intention here is that we would associate this Jesus with the radiant glory, even the Shekinah glory that periodically manifested itself over the course of the history of, of Israel. That is, uh, it may be even beginning with the burning bush, but certainly beginning with the, the pillar and the cloud that guided the nation out of Egypt. That, that was a manifestation of the very glory of, of God. And so, Jesus is the glorious one. In fact, the text that we read together a few minutes ago, the Isaiah 6 passage, John tells us in his gospel, chapter 12 and verse 41, that what Isaiah saw in the temple was who? Jesus. The eternal Son of God in his pre-incarnate state. Now, let's, let's tie these things together. Philippians 2. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found as an appearance like man. In other words, if we had seen Jesus before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, before the incarnation, what we would have seen is the glorious, eternal God. He would have been brilliant in all that we would have seen and known and experienced of him. When he took on humanity, the Apostle Paul in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 15, describes it as Jesus being the image, the visible incarnation of the invisible God, and then goes on to say the fullness or the wholeness of deity dwells in Christ. So that which would have been obvious in eternity past is shrouded or covered in the veil of humanity that was not 
seen. And so Christ came, and if he walked down the street, you'd say, there goes a guy. There goes Joseph's son. There goes the carpenter. You would have not gone. That guy is glorious. It was veiled by the reality of his humanity. The writer of Hebrews describes him as the radiance of God's glory. A radiance that was veiled in humanity, but for this one episode in the course of his incarnation, in the course of the life of these disciples, they see something that no one had seen before, namely the glory of God in Christ, unveiled and overwhelming. And so we are, I think, definitively to understand that this is a confirmation of beyond even what Peter would have confessed. You're the Christ. Yes, I'm the Christ. But I'm far beyond what you can fathom. I am eternally glorious and powerful. And so they see this. They experience this. Now we're told that in the course of this transformation of being of being altered, uh, so, so to speak, that, that two men were talking with him. And they're identified as Moses and Elijah. Presumably, either they identified themselves to the disciples or Jesus introduced them to the disciples. Again, uh, there wouldn't have been photographs. They couldn't have gone back to the uh, ancient Israel history books and looked at photographs of Moses and Elijah. They would not have been able to recognize them. But they, they know or they recognize that these are the two men that appear with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, why these two guys? Now, they're big, obviously. Just, okay, well, they're just two very important, very central characters uh, pertinent to the Old Covenant, pertinent to the, to the Old Testament. And so, kind of simple. That, that, that it's, just, it's just those two. But, but why not Abraham and David? Or, or, or why not uh, Noah and Joseph? I mean, you, you could go on and on and on. But I think the main reason, and it's kind of two interrelated reasons, many times the Old Testament is referred to as the law and the prophets. And so Moses was the great lawgiver, okay? God gave to Israel the law through Moses. And Elijah was representative of the prophets. But again, why Elijah? He didn't even write a book. Why not Isaiah? He wrote the biggest book. Why, why Elijah? Well, maybe he was a miracle worker. Well, possibly. Maybe because of the unique surrounding of the end of his life. Maybe, maybe it was that. But my suspicion is this. Is that God is stating in a kind of a visual way that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all that was anticipated from the time of Moses through the days of Elijah. And so Moses and Elijah form a kind of parentheses that at least encapsulate the entirety of that Old Testament epoch. The epoch of the law is introduced by note by Moses. We say, well, how can it be, how can it end with Elijah? He he lived a long time before the end of the old covenant days. It's because in the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter, 
the last verses, there's a reference to Elijah who would come before the great day of the Lord. And so you have the one who inaugurated the Old Covenant era, and you have the one that concluded the Old Testament era, namely Elijah, and they appear with the Lord Jesus Christ in a sense We're handing the baton off. It is a new day. There are changes that are coming. There's distinctions to be made. Our age has ran its course. And here is the one who will inaugurate the new day, day, the new age. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're told that they're there talking. They're chatting. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And, uh, of course... The disciples were asleep while all this was going on. Imagine that. They slept through it. But we're told here uh, in the text that they were talking, and again, verse 31, they spoke of his departure, of Jesus' departure. And again, the Greek is the word from which we get exodus. Okay, They were talking about Jesus and his exodus or his exit from uh, this world. And so that exit is going to come through suffering. Now I don't know exactly what they talked about, but just something occurred to me. It it may not this may not be be correct, but it's just kind of interesting. Moses do not fall short. See, Moses did what? He died outside the promised land. He only got to see it from a high mountain. So you're the Christ You're the anointed one. You're the chosen one to inaugurate, to to go through this season of suffering. So don't fall short. And Elijah, don't be discouraged. Because Elijah, after God worked mightily in him, he became incredibly depressed, incredibly discouraged, and God had to remind him, listen, buddy, you're not alone. You think you're alone, but you're not. There's 7,000 that haven't caved in. And so I don't know if that's what they were saying, but... That was the discussion, because what does Jesus do? He leads a far greater exodus than Moses could have ever imagined. Moses descended back into Egypt and brought the people out of bondage. Jesus descends to this earth and ultimately descends into the earth for the purpose of those who are slaves, who are captives. And when He sheds His blood, the final Passover blood is shed abroad and there is a great exodus as the captives are led out of their captivity through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Moses and Elijah, don't fall short. There is a greater exodus that's coming in and through you. Don't be discouraged. The the road is going to be a road that is characterized by profound suffering. But you keep the course because we know that as great as the Exodus was, and remember the Exodus probably involved several million people being led through the desert into the promised land. That's great. That's a big deal. It'd be a big deal today with modern transportation. But Christ accomplishes a far greater, a far more significant Exodus as he ultimately saves people from their sins, freeing them from their bondage and from their slavery. And so the disciples, they finally wake up. Look at verses 32 and 33. 
We're told that they became fully awake. I guess the glory, if it's a glory like Isaiah experienced that overwhelmed him, that would wake you up. You know, that, that would wake you up. That, that would get your attention. And so they, they were probably startled awake and saw a stunning, overwhelming sight. They see Christ in a glory that they could not imagine. I'm reminded that, that Paul would write that, that uh, eyes not seen uh, nor ear heard that which God has prepared for those who, who love Him. And, and so they got at least a glimpse, a glimpse that's consistent with what John would see on the Isle of Patmos as he saw the resurrected Son of Man uh, appearing as, as the, the uh, uh, appearing with the ancient of, of days to be commended for all that He had accomplished. And so he, he sees something of the glorious Christ. It, it stunned them. And so Peter being at a, never at a loss for words. I mean, it, you're, you're all struck, but you've got to say something if you're Peter. He says, well, here's what we can, uh, we can do. Let, let's, uh, let, let's, build some, let's build some tents. I mean, that's what you do when you're overwhelmed. You build some tents. Now, Possibly a, a reference to some of the ancient festivals, the Feast of Booths, this celebration of what went on in the Exodus, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I don't know why that came to, to Peter's mind. But there's a, a real distinction. As you, as you study the Old Testament, you, you often get this, build a monument here. Because here's what I want to happen. When you and your children walk by this area, I want you to look at that monument, and I want you to tell them a story. I want you to tell them a story of what God did right here. And, and that's good. That's good. But in the New Testament, there, there's a, a, a distinction. You know what? We don't know where the stable was that Jesus was born in. We don't know where the tomb was that he was placed in upon his death. We, we don't know the mountain that he ascended. I mean, we could go on and on and on. That those things are, are hidden from us. And the Christian faith is not a, a visual faith. It's not a, a faith that is uh, characterized by the stunning and the, the stupendous. I believe Jesus was saying to him, listen, listen. The Word and the Spirit are going to be enough for this to be remembered appropriately. You don't have to build anything. I don't want tour buses driving up here and, and, and looking around and thinking they're having some kind of great experience. What they need to do to experience me is hear my word to, and to, to have, a, have the reality of the presence of my experience. And so, New Testament Christianity is not primarily visual. It is verbal. It's here. It's here, the Word of God. It's here, the Gospel. Not come and see something. Not come and see, some, not come to some slideshow. It is, again, to hear the Word of God. And so, these dumbfounded disciples, they, they came up with something, but it evidently simply was not uh, the right thing for what Jesus had in mind for how this should be uh, remembered and understand, understood. Well, let's move forward in verse 30, 34. 
the cloud and the voice. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Again, an illusion when God would reveal himself, whether at Sinai, Moses would go up into the cloud that would veil the reality of the presence of God when the temple was dedicated, or even when the tabernacle was dedicated, there was an association with this, with this cloud that would, in a sense, shroud the, the glory of God. And so this, this cloud enveloped them. And I don't, I don't think it was just like a, a fog, as thick as, as fog can be, and as, as, as much as it can render us unable to move around. We're told in 1 Kings, when the cloud descended on the dedicated temple, the, the priests couldn't even do their work because it was so dark in there. So I believe it was darkness that came over uh, these disciples. And, and again, again, it was the point of, alright, settle down. You're going in 17 different directions. Just stop. You know, there's nothing that will stop you in your tracks like darkness. That'll stop you. You know, whether you're driving or whether you're walking, you know, if you're walking through your house at night and you've got the lights on the power goes out, guess what you do? You stop. And so, again, God enforced upon them a, a stop. And, and then... The, we're, the, the, in verse 34, the cloud is described as overshadowing them. Now, we've, we've, it, Luke has talked about that before, that, that when Mary's going to conceive Jesus in uh, the womb, this is, this is the language, the, the Holy Spirit coming upon and overshadowing. And so they are in the presence of, of Almighty God, that, that, that they're enveloped in this. And so... the. Jesus and, and Luke and, and, and the Holy Spirit wants us to understand these, these associations, this, this cloud of glory, this, this vision of, of great light in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're to associate these things with the way God revealed Himself previously is now being completed and perfected in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, in the midst of a cloud, we hear a voice. In verse 35, And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. I think Josh got at that with the kids. What's the point in, in this? It's the, the, the message of the voice. This is uniquely my son, the one I have chosen to accomplish this great exodus, an exodus that, 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 uh, that will absolutely overwhelm any, anything that we think of in terms of, of, a, of an exodus. He is going to, in a greater way, in a permanent way, in a more powerful way, he is going to set the slaves free. And so, this is my son, my chosen one. Don't look for the sight of the transfiguration. Don't look for the place where Jesus was born. Don't look for the place of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't look for the Mount of Ascension. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. That, that was the message to the disciples, and that's the message to us here today. Jesus is the one. Listen to Him. And so, everything that God was all about, that in, in terms of revealing Himself under the Old Covenant, was, in, was for the purpose of anticipating and picturing 
what Jesus was going to accomplish. And so, in a sense, Moses and Elijah, here's the baton, Jesus. Now it's time for you to finish your unique race. And so, the meaning, well, I think maybe first and foremost, it was a word of reassurance to the disciples. Peter can say, yeah guys, I got it right. Who is this Jesus? He, he's the Christ. I can tell you for certain. And then, if, if you'll remember, Jesus starts talking about, well, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. And, and essentially, that's what I'm asking of you. You, you follow me until death. And that was, that, that was kind of a, well, that, that was sobering, okay? I'm thinking kingdom. Jesus says, okay, you're going to get a glimpse of the kingdom. And so they got a, a now vision of the kingdom, but they also got a message of not yet in its completion or its prefer, perfection. We don't look around. I, I, I know I don't look real glorious up here today. But I am a kingdom citizen. You're, I'm, we're looking at the kingdom as we exist now. And folks, it is enough. It, it is enough. We don't run around, look, well, I want to see the glory. I want to see the glory. And, and, and again, in a, in a sense, there is a reality of this. I've, I've mentioned several times. My, my paradigm for worship is Isaiah 6. Not that you see with these eyes something spectacular and beautiful and glorious, but in the eyes of your heart, through your ears, you hear of the risen and glorious Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, you cry out, Woe is me! I'm undone! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But that, folks, hear me. Now don't quit on me. You've got, you got to hear the other side. That's not the end of the story. Your sins are atoned for. That was the message. Your sins are atoned for. In Jesus, our sins are atoned for. And our re the response, worship is not completed until there's a response. And every time you encounter the risen Christ, and you encounter the risen Christ every time the gospel is preached, there must be a response, and the appropriate response is not, oh, how cool that was. The appropriate response is, here I am, send me. This is my son, my chosen one, hear him. All things that God had revealed of himself are perfected, they are finalized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for us, just as it was for the disciples. He's the one. He's the one. Now listen to Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for Your truth. And Lord, we thank You that we don't have to go running around looking for some kind of spectacular experience out on the mountains somewhere. That, Lord, every time that your word and spirit are present, they are at work in those who believe, and you are revealing the greatness of your Son to us. And God, I pray that you would go through that process of convicting and then comforting and then commissioning us to go out and continue our worship by serving you. I pray that today that we have indeed, uh, in, in the appropriate way, through our hearing, we have seen the glorious, 
the resurrected one who is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world who has come in to give us an exodus from our slavery to sin. God, would you continue your work in us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.